Before we begin today's episode, take your own narrative there and enter our grim short story competition. Go to danmurphys.com.au and enter your short story as a review of a product, then tweet us your entry at beyondzeropod or email it to us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. Michael and I will be reading out the 10 shortlisted entries and the winner will receive a signed copy of Grimish. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 12 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is George Solace. George is a writer, editor, and podcaster, and he runs the literary journal, The Kaleidoscope. Welcome to the show, George. Oh, thank you so much, Ben, for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You've got to be one of the busiest people in the literature world. You have a day job uh, and you do the kaleidoscope. You've got a podcast now. You do a lot of editing. You interview people. Could you give, a, and give us an idea of, of what your current projects are and, and how you fit it all into your day? Oh, my gosh. How? That's a, that's a big question. I just try to take it step by step. I do have a list of say, potential product, uh, projects for the Kaleidoscope, uh, people I'd love to interview. Sometimes it's harder to contact certain authors than others. For example, I just finished reading Vox by Nicholson Baker, and, and I got the vibe that this man is a sort of dirty Don DeLillo, and <laughs> I just love that book. Uh, lo and behold, most of his books are published by Penguin, and I tried to contact him through Twitter, but he turned off the messaging function. So I'm not <laughs> quite sure if it'll be possible to contact him. But uh, I'm pretty pernicious. I mean, that, that's not right the word, but I'm, I persevere. Let's just say that. And it took me about a year and a half to get an interview with Joseph McElroy, for example. So I don't give up. And <laughs> other projects... I mean, it's hard to say because I do have a list of books that I want to get to and potentially review for my site, um, but sometimes they don't live up to their potential or what I thought they would be, and then I don't write about them. You know, most of my life I'm spending writing Morphological Echoes, my second novel, that's been put on hold as I move, as I move to North Carolina and settle down. and. As far as the podcast that I started in which I'm reading some of my favorite stories by some of my favorite authors, that's going to be only once a month tops. So we'll see how that goes. All right, let's move on to your writing. And so earlier in the year, I read See Above, Some Below, which I really enjoyed. Um, for those who haven't read it, can you give us a brief outline of what it's about? To be honest, I was dreading you asking me that because <laughs> <laughs> I... I really don't like summing up my books because it's not a point A, point B story with a, you know, a bow tie wrapped around it. Um, there are about, depending on how you count, there's about 12 stories. Of course, there's a main storyline, but they're all connected on either a temporal level, a genealogical level, or both. But it opens up with a skydiver who passes out mid-fall. And in 
that time where he's blacked out, he has a vision of an angel with a sun for a head and two pairs of wings on the angel's back. And he comes to just in time to avoid gravity's anger. And he lands in the, uh, the dirt angels they have when they land because this is a group of skydivers. They challenge themselves to do things sometimes in, let's say, uh, too much of a frat boy way. Some of these skydivers I don't even like as characters, but that's just how they are. And the main story follows the consequence of that vision. The protagonist's name is Adam. He publishes a, an essay about his experience, which garners interest from two cult-like individuals who had been taking care of their father, and their father eventually died uh, because of an infection in his foot. And for the rest of the time, they're trying to resurrect him, and they keep his body in the upstairs bedroom. And, and, and then we have Adam's girlfriend, Evelyn, who suffers from a psychological fear of hellfire. And one thing that connects both Adam and Evelyn are the traumas they had in their past with their parents. And they explore those traumas later in the book, and things escalate almost to a, a sort of vague apocalyptic level. I hope I did some justice to that. For someone who is dreading a question like that, you certainly <laughs> answered it well. <laughs> I mean, there's other uh, branches of the storyline, such as a child who falls in an icy river and eventually uh, is fished out, no pun intended, and she survives falling in that river. But afterwards, she has some telepathic abilities with aquatic creatures. And this is the daughter of one of Adam's skydiver friends. And so there's all these different connections um, in a book that's around 310 pages, which is a pretty average length. And compared to what I'm working on now, I would say that this novel is a footnote. Uh, I've taken I've taken my obsessions to a whole new level, um, and now I'm working on a book that's been going on for about five years of a lot of dedicated work. And I, it's hard to predict exactly how long it will be, but probably somewhere on the scale of Infinite Jest. Wow. With I guess your first book, and you've talked about Adam and Evelyn and. Evelyn, for those who can't think of how that name is spelt, is, uh, has the first three letters EVE for Eve as well. Mm-hmm. So within your book, there's a lot of myths, there's a lot of biblical themes. So let's talk a bit about your interest in mythology. Okay. Well, well, here's the thing. The reason I even started writing about skydivers is because the motion of falling in that way echoed one of my favorite myths of the Greek persuasion, Icarus and Daedalus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's, of course, the, the, the fall echoes throughout all kinds of mythology. You have the fall of man with a capital M. You have the fall of Satan. You have the fall of Humpty Dumpty. You have the fall of Finnegan in his wake. Um, and so I explore all those falls. As for Christian mythology specifically, 
I, I studied that a lot because I wanted to understand uh, the mind of believers, because no one, no one currently believes in Greek myths, but the Christian myths uh, are more uh, self-sustaining. Is that the right word? I suppose so, yeah. And so trying to understand people who believe in those in a literal way I've I've read up on on that and the psychology behind that, and so I, I have an intimate knowledge of that, and I used it to to play with the falls and all the other themes you'll find in the novel. It really comes together beautifully at the end as well. I won't spoil it for anybody, but mm-hmm. the way you finish that novel and the way you bring back everybody at the end, kind of thing, is it it really finishes on a in a satisfying way for something that in part is like a, I guess it's like a Russian doll narrative in a way because your stories are interlinked by, by as you said, like genealogy or other, other factors. But mm-hmm. there's a lot of separate stuff going on there and the way you tie it all together at the end is fantastic. Thank you so much. I love the uh, Shazerzadian impulse, <laughs> as it were. So I'm always dealing with stories besides stories, stories within stories. And again, in my second novel, you'll be getting quite a bit of that. We could talk about that later if you want. Yeah. One of the books that it reminded me of was The Centaur by John Updike. Mm. And that's a book that is really heavily based on myth and then also drags you back into a a real people-based, solid, emotional story. Were there any authors who you took inspiration from for for this book funny you mentioned the centaur because i had been meaning to read that novel uh for quite some time when i was sort of on an updike kick and i read all the rabbit books for Mm. instance but i never did manage to get to the centaur before i started uh going deeper and deeper into literature I, i might have to check that out and uh but as far as inspiration for see above some below the the most potent was certainly the satanic verses by Salman Rushdie. Uh, that novel also opens up with with a fall? two protagonists falling, and that was not a, a purposeful illusion. I only um, consciously compared that later on after I had written the opening to my novel. I don't want to compare the, those novels too much because mine is a first novel. And in the Satanic Verses is one of his masterpieces that he labored over for, I think it was six years, maybe. Mm. But but that also has the sort of Matroika, Matryoshka dolls and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Have you read Grimace by Rashti, his first book? I have not. Those are That's one of the few I'm saving. So that is also heavily, heavily influenced by, by myth. And I think that's something that really, in a way, I guess Essential and, and Grimace were two of the books that I, I thought about reading your book. So that's, I think that's pretty, uh, I think that ties in with your work really nicely, the way mm-hmm. you've got the satanic verses in there as a, as a bit of an uh, inspiration for your book. I should mention that I started writing See Above, Sun Below, near the end of college as part of my senior research. Um, I never did finish it for the senior research. I I was a bit ambitious. I double majored 
in psychology and ended up doing a whole separate uh, set of research for that major. But uh, what I wanted to do was explore the Icarus myth in 20th century works. And so I read Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch, and A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Marquez, which is a short story. It's a beautiful short story, isn't it? Oh, it's one of my favorites. That's why I quoted it uh, mm. at the beginning of my novel. And I'm trying to remember the others. There was a, a children's book, if you will, by Brian Greene called Icarus at the Edge of Time. Uh, and he takes the Icarus myth, turns it into a sci-fi version in which he's flying too close to a, a black hole. It has beautiful uh, NASA imagery to accompany it. But, but yeah, that's sort of where I, I got my footing. And then I ended up finishing it on my own time after having graduated. Wow. So how old were you when you finished that book? 23. Unbelievable. Wow. I started it when I was 20. It took about, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, what a debut novel. My goodness. I can't believe you were 23. That's, that's what a lot of critics have been commenting on the young age at which I wrote it. All I can say is it's my first try. I did as, as good as I could possibly do at that time. Obviously, uh, I do think I can do better now that I've grown in the five years that have since passed. So wait and see. Wow. Okay. Well, let's move on then to sure. morphological echoes, because I know a lot of people are really keen on hearing about this. Now that you've mm -hmm. told me that you were 23 when you wrote your first book, I cannot wait to read your second book because I think uh, if it's a length of infinite jest and if it has any of the brilliance of your first book, it is going to be a treat. Maybe this is a, oh, thank you for that. And maybe this is a weird way to start it off, but I read Alexander Theroux's review in the Washington Post of Thomas Pynchon's Against the Day, mm -hmm. a novel I have yet to read. And but the review and how he described that novel just sounded like a total kindred spirit to what I've been working on for years. Not exact, of course, uh, but the multiplicity of voices, the stories within stories, and, and just the expansion of everything into, into something that's uh, more than the sum of its parts, as it were. Uh, I, I did write a little description of it. Maybe I can read that, and then we can... Add live a little more after that. That would be great. Because it's so hard to encapsulate this novel, especially compared to my first one. Mm. So it's a book that contains a universe of stories connected across time and space by the rearrangement of schizoid atoms, the transmutation, the laws of physics. And I do mean that literally uh, in the sense of magical realism that I use. It's a polyphonic, multilinear, omnitemporal epic with thematic and syntactic echoes taking place in 1940s Japan, 9-11 New York, medieval France, ancient Egypt. The, the Egyptian section alone took me 13 months to write, and it's 85,000 words. My first novel's 81,000 words as a comparison. So essentially, it's a novel within a novel. Mm -hmm. Neolithic prehistory, and more, with a broken family at its kaleidoscopic core. And the novel begins with a myth, a truth, 
The moon gives birth to a boy. And when he grows weary of life on the landscape of his mother, he yearns for a strange planet called Earth. After quarreling with his mother over the course of years, she eventually concedes with sadness and she breathes in with the elasticity of a balloon, causing the moon boy to sink with her surface. And she breathes out a supernal sigh that sends him on a trajectory straight toward the earth. And that's how it begins. Um, as far as specific sections, the one that's set in Neolithic prehistory is titled Smog Mammoth. And I won't explain much, but an element that sort of connects all of these stories is smoke or fog or smog. Smog Mammoth is written in a, in a, a sort of monosyllabic caveman talk almost comparable um, to the post-apocalyptic section in Cloud Atlas, but uh, still very much its own style. And then we have, well, let me just explain one of the offshoot stories called Armchair Philosopher. For fans of DFW, they might love this concept because this, this one has some of the most uh, potent influences from DFW. And it's an armchair philosopher. All the story is inside of his claustrophobic mind. And he's trying to come to, uh, let's say, the theory of everything. And then he throws out everything to create his own theory until at the apex of the story, all we get is uh, Deepak level, Deepak Chopra level uh, gibberish and nonsensical equations. and he stays in this armchair of his until he's absorbed into it and becomes the armchair itself. And it ends with an obese man who sits in it and farts on him, <laughs> which kind of reminds me of that DFW story that I don't know if he ever actually wrote it or it was never published about a, a bird that continually circles in the sky in ever decreasing circles until it flies up its own ass and disappears. <laughs> That's just a very, very small taste of the kinds of things you'll get in this novel. It sounds unbelievable. With, I guess, your protagonist, you said there's a family involved. Is that mm -hmm. set, like chronologically, when is that part of it, the book set? The Broken Family, that's set in modern day. And that'll, that'll be sort of the grounding main thread, and, and there will be uh, very long digressions uh, across time, planets, and, and various locations on Earth. When you were writing this, or uh, as you've been writing it, I should say, have you been writing it in the chronological order of the book, or have you been writing separate sections? Separate sections. Uh, I didn't even write the beginning chapter with the moon boy until I'm not sure when six months, maybe even a year after the fact I started uh, with something that is far from the main story, a story called womb. Most, most of these are, or some of these stories have been published in various magazines as I write them, just something to get out there while you're spending so much time on one huge project. And, and womb is a story about, let's say, a yoga instructor named Jonah, who 
who is instructing people on how to connect with the womb with the capital w uh, which involves various yoga poses various whistlings at certain pitches until the womb opens up and consumes them uh, it's probably the one of the most graphic things i i wrote at that time i, I think i've i might have uh, broke that record since then though can I ask you, no pressure or anything, uh, how far along is this book? How far do you think you have to go? My goal, and it's a superficial goal, and, it, and it's a goal that I noticed aligned with Bo Burnham uh, to finish his uh, comedy special Inside at the age of 30. <laughs> I'm going to be turning 30 in December of next year, and I'm hoping to finish it by then. I am getting very close. I'm, I'm at the point where I'm finishing sections that I have notes for that are around five years old. It feels so good to finally uh, exercise these stories that have been gestating for so long. Wow. I, honestly, I cannot wait to read this. I think this is going to be our next big maximalist novel out there. Uh, just hearing you talk about it, is <laughs> giving me some uh, definite, definite feelings that I'm going to really love this book. So I wish you so much luck uh, finishing it off and getting it out there into the world. I'm definitely going to need luck finding a publisher for this one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think there are enough really good readers out there at the moment that I think that you might find yourself uh, having a bit of a struggle to choose which publisher. That's what I hope um, for you anyway. Well, that will be a dream come true. I did sell the Russian translation rights to my novel uh, out of the blue, and now it's going to be published uh, from a press in Moscow alongside a translation of Evan Dara's The Lost Scrapbook. That's pretty surreal to me. Yeah. So, good things happen sometimes. They do. They do. Well, I hope they happen for you with this book because I know there's a lot of people out there waiting for it. And yeah, there are a lot of people who will be very keen readers once it's out. Thank you. Let's take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're talking with George Solis. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Hardy's Tess of the Dobervilles, as read by Kendrick Lamar. Tess of the Jabbervilles, a poor woman, faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. On an evening in the latter part of May, a middle-aged man was walking homeward from Shaston to the village of Marlat, and then you join in Vale of Blakewall, Blakewall. Get it now on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with George Solis. Let's move on to the kaleidoscope. Um, that's something you've been running for quite a while. The thing that I love about this is your interviews with people like Theroux and McElroy and other amazing authors that we were talking about before getting, you know, having hard times getting in touch with them. How has mm -hmm. that experience been for you? It's been uh, more than I could have ever imagined for sure. It started off with some, some humble beginnings. I just wanted to start publishing fiction that aligns with my unique tastes, something uh, that I don't see too often with other online publications or any publications for that matter. Uh, fiction that one might consider innovative, difficult. I hesitate to use experimental, but 
a lot of people know what I mean when I use that word. Purple prose sings to me. Um, of course, I publish poetry as well as for interviews. Uh, the, I think one of the first major interviews I did was with Patricia Eakins, who had just uh, published her reprint of The Hungry Girls, which is one of the best story collections I've read. Uh, if anyone who loves anyone who loves Borges will love this or Calvino, um, and that was and from there it was just you know persistence and ambition and 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 trying to contact writers I love as I discover them and ones who I've already loved for a long time. Uh, but my focus for sure is the kind of fiction that doesn't really get covered in in, in other publications. You call it invisible fiction, don't you? Invisible books. That's my invisible catchphrase, books, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, which in some ways is sensational, but in some ways is quite true. Books that uh, many people have never heard of and probably would never have heard of if I hadn't written about them. And of course, some books, unfortunately, are meant to be uh, unread, let's say. Uh, and so I try to sift through the the unforgotten or the forgotten ones so that I can shine a light on that and let readers know that this is something they might love perhaps a lot more than the type of fiction that gets published today. With this process of interviewing writers, I think you've created relationships with quite a few of them. How has that improved you as a reader and a writer? Well, it's surreal in the sense because it increases my sense of connectedness with other authors that I admire to a very high degree. Usually it's, it's the case where you read the book and, and you have a, a sort of semi one-sided relationship with that person. But being able to correspond with them on a, on a personal level or to have an interview where you can ask them more in-depth questions about about their work and their beliefs about literature and other things of that nature uh, really heightens the the experience I get out of literature in general. And yeah, it's I feel very grateful to be able to interact with all of these great writers and to be able to put their work uh, more on a pedestal uh, in my own small way, because I'm certainly not the New York Times. I think with someone like Theroux as well, for me, you made me much more aware of him. He's somebody mm -hmm. who I still haven't read because I found his work quite difficult to, to actually mm -hmm. get my hands on. How oh, is yes. that, how is that relationship with him going? And I know you, I think you recently edited some of his short stories as well. Did you not? Well, the story begins with my review of Darkenville's cat. Stephen Moore had read that and he told me that that was one of the best, if not the best, reviews of the cat that he's ever read. And this is coming from someone who said that that's, su that's such a favorite novel of theirs that they want to be buried with their copy. Mm. And I also joked at one time that if anyone uh, is trying to find a copy, they know which grave to dig up <laughs> when the time comes. Sorry, Steve. Uh, but <laughs> uh, that was the, the very beginning. He, he helped me get in contact with Alex, and, and I shared that review with him, which he was very appreciative of, and even more appreciative of, his, of the review I eventually wrote of 
Lara or a Holic or the sexual intellectual, which is a novel that has been even more neglected. Uh, and from there, he, he asked me if I knew any agents or publishers I could recommend for his collected stories. And I thought, if someone of that stature is asking me for connections, then he, this is someone who's in need of help. Mm -hmm. And when I can help, I, I want to help somebody uh, as meager as my means are. I did suggest some agents who he reached out to. I'm not sure if he ever heard back. And then I started suggesting some specific publishers. I posted on goodreads.com, which is sort of the Facebook of books. I posted on there asking if anyone had any connections. So I was just uh, spreading the Theruvian gospel, as it were. A uh, publisher reached out. Uh, unfortunately, that did not work. So we were getting to levels of uh, desperation, I guess you could say, and I recommended Tough Poets Press, which is not to say that that's a last resort. This is a press, a one-man press run by Richard Schober. He's doing amazing work all by himself, but also not by himself because each book is crowdfunded on Kickstarter. So without those backers, the books wouldn't exist. And I first pitched it to Richard Schober. I said, would you be interested in, in publishing the collected stories? And, and he was very enthusiastic about it and wanted to accommodate uh, Alex as best as he could, even though he's not a, a big publisher by any means. And so I got them both in contact. Um, Alex was very interested in the idea. And lo and behold, the early stories have been published. It's going to be three volumes. The next volume will be Fables, something I'm quite partial to, as you know, and then the late stories. And eventually there will be a collection of all of them in one volume. I hope it's going to be hardcover. I'm not quite sure yet. But, but yeah, that's pretty much the story. Uh, Alex is is an is something of an old man father he sends me pictures of it of what he calls his peppercorns all the time his <laughs> his two twin daughters and yeah it's pretty uh, heartwarming to see that i am astounded that somebody like theroux does not have a publisher i i i when when i saw you earlier in the year <clears throat> posting about that i just it, it knocks me over that somebody who is like alexander theroux and how his books are not more well-known, how they haven't been published in, I don't know, what, 20 years, basically. I don't know how that happens. Well, there's, there's various factors, um, probably too much to get into now. He does have something of a reputation for being difficult to work with as far as incorporating hundreds of edits and stuff, which uh, Stephen Moore writes about in his latest book, which is simply titled Alexander Theroux. Uh, his experience working with him, with, uh, with Laura Warharlick when that was published through Fantagraphics. But, um, of course, there's the zeitgeist, as it were, of, of commercial fiction that's safe and plastic and pretty much the opposite of what Alex writes. Alex 
even back in the day, he was something of an antiquated writer, something from another age. Uh, fast forwarded to modern day. Let's get on to you as a reader. Was there a gateway book for you, a book that opened up the world of literature? I'm going to have a, maybe a strange answer for you. You know Christopher Hitchens? Yeah, of course. Hitch 22 mm. was, well, let me go a little farther back in time. Middle school, I read all kinds of fantasy books. I loved getting the Scholastic catalog and, and picking things, many things based on the cover art alone. Uh, and then it, was, then it wasn't until high school that I started reading popularized science books. Carl Sagan, Richard Dawkins, and then, of course, from Richard Dawkins, you get to Christopher Hitchens. I sort of was hesitant to read some of his books because I only saw him as a quote-unquote journalist. Little did I know what I was missing out on until I eventually uh, read Hitch 22. This would be early in college. That memoir is so packed with allusions to literature, history, anything and everything you can name. And so I had Google and Wikipedia and everything else at the ready as I was reading each page, looking up his amazing verbose vocabulary and all the allusions. And as you know, Hitch existed within a very tight circle of friends, uh, which includes Martin Amos, Martin Amos, Ian McEwen, and Salman Rushdie. From there, I, I got interested in those authors I read. I think it was Amos's memoir experience. So I guess I was on a mm -hmm. memoir kick at the time. And then I found his Times Arrow at a bookstore that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore uh, in Central Florida. That was a pretty interesting read as far as starting to get into serious literature so late in life. The backwards timeline of a Nazi and exploring uh, what it's like instead to, instead of destroying a race of beings to create them out of lightning mm -hmm. and gas and bullets. Uh, so that was extremely fascinating and remains to this day one of my favorite books. From there, I read more Amos and also branched out to read more Ian McEwen. And eventually I got to who is so dear to my heart, Salman Rushdie. Uh, I read, I believe it was The Ground Beneath Her Feet first, because I wanted to get uh, my feet wet first before I read what was considered, and I agree, his masterpieces, The Satanic Verses and Midnight's Children. Mm. And that's how it all started. Well, The Ground Beneath Her Feet is full of myth as well. You've got Orpheus in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, it's, it's not as good as his twin pillar masterpieces, but I still think it's, it's him uh, quite at the height of his powers. And I, I love that. I love that. Let's talk more about him later because I think we've probably both got a lot to say about him. <laughs> oh, but yeah. We'll keep him for a, for a little bit. Let's uh, chat about what's, what you're currently reading, what's in your TBR pile and what things you're looking forward to. Well, I mentioned Vox, Nicholson Baker, the dirty Don DeLillo. Um, and I found that at going to my first bookstore here in North Carolina. I haven't been out too much as I'm doing all these chores trying to get settled. But I really enjoyed that. And from the same bookstore, I picked up the Fermata. So 
Um, I'll definitely get to that as well. Other than Baker, I do have a, a to be read pile on my desk. This mostly consists of um, writers I'm interested in interviewing or invisible books. Mm. A lot of my reading is, for better or worse, dictated by my column. So I can just look over to my right and I see Horseplay by Lee Siegel. I currently have uh, an, a review of his Type Erotica, which is one of his more recent books. Highly recommended to any, fr- uh, any fans of Henry Miller. And Love in a Dead Language, which I think is his masterwork and belongs in what I'm calling the perversity trinity, which includes Darkville's Cat and Lolita, about learned men of letters who are in love with illegal labium. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I have more Lance Olson to read. I already interviewed and covered some of his work, and he was kind enough to send me a, a fat stack of signed books. And so I'm homing in on Dream Lives of Debris, published by Dizank, who is doing amazing work getting more Joseph McElroy out there to mm-hmm. readers. I have Cartescu. Cartescu, I don't. Uh, take authority on pronouncing that Romanian name, but he wrote Nostalgia, published by New Directions, which I'm excited to read and hopefully come out with a bilingual interview. And I recently recently obtained The Devil to Pay in the Backlands by Chuao uh, Rosa. I don't know. Have you heard of this? Novel? No, I haven't heard of that. It sounds very interesting. Well, it's an invisible book, let me tell you. <laughs> it was actually on Joshua Cohen's list of Ulysses, the Ulysses of each country, oh, which is wow. somewhat of a sensationalist categorization. <laughs> but if it helps people branch out and find more amazing books to read, then more power to you. Uh, so this is considered the Brazilian Ulysses. It's so out of print. I think there might be a new translation coming out. Um, titled The Devil and the Whirlwind, which has something of a more uh, mellifluous tone to it. Uh, However, I don't want to sit on my bum waiting for this new translation. I have this very rare copy, which I plan on reading, reviewing, and I hope to have an e-book to disseminate it to willing readers, because I believe literature should be available to all no matter what. And that's why I disseminate an ebook of Darkenville's Cat whenever I get the chance. I get about an email every couple of weeks or so, people asking for the, the ebook version. I might have to hit you up for that as well. Would you like more uh, about what I'm planning to read? Or? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I recently atta- obtained My Horse and Other Stories by Stacey Levine. This comes recommended to me by Wendy Walker, who was an early project of mine and uh, uh, most recently, her novel, The Secret Service, which is an uncategorizable sci-fi fantasy grail quest, will be reprinted uh, by Rick at Tough Poets Press. So be on the lookout for that very soon. Uh, she says this is one of her favorite books by uh, Stacey Levine, and I'm hoping maybe to find a story that I love enough, and that is uh, the optimum length for my podcast, the Kaleidoscope podcast. Mm -hmm. Recently, I received a review copy 
from NYRB of Abel and Cain by Gregor von Rizzori. This has an introduction by Joshua Cohen, and it's very thick, let me tell you. It's sort of um, a combination of two books that are, are meant to be together. And I don't have too much expectations for it, but it's translated from the German. It's always good to uh, get your dose of translated fiction in. I have the Book of Portraiture by Steve Tomasula, one of the most recent projects on the kaleidoscope. Steve wrote Vass in Opera in Flatland, which has typographical trickery on the scale of Danielewski's House of Leaves and definitely pushes the boundary of what a novel as an art form can be, maybe should be, uh, with collage elements and all kinds of things going on. So I highly recommend any books by him, but Vass is a great place to start. And not too long ago, I published a bilingual interview with Ibrahim Alconi, which is, uh, who is a very popular and very prolific Libyan writer. And yet, he is not so, uh, so much read in the US. Is he read at all in Australia, do you know? Not at all, as far as I know. Well, I started with his slim volume, Anubis, which takes um, the desert myths that he grew up in, which are related to, of course, Egyptian myths, and, and explores the, the more primordial myth of Anubis that comes before the one, as we know it, from Egyptian mythology. But I have his, what he considers his best book, and it is subtitled A Tareg Epic. It's titled the fetishists. I'm looking forward to getting to that. Maybe we can do one more. We have, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Arowina or Arowina by Tom Mallon, published by the now defunct Verberacious Press. And this, the description, it sounds like something I would love dearly. And it's inspired a lot by the oxen in the sun. Oxen of the Sun episode uh, of Ulysses. But we can talk about Ulysses later. I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> I, uh, I always make a joke on this podcast because it's actually not a joke anymore that this is just costing me money every single week. And <laughs> uh, um, yes, I'm going to buy quite a few of those books already. Um, I have a feeling most of your top 10 I won't need to buy, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I think there'll be quite a few on your list that. I'm going to put on mine very quickly. Well, some disclaimer would be uh, wait till I read and review them if you don't want to be disappointed. <laughs> Not that my word is 100% is reliable because everyone's tastes are different. But some of these turn out to be duds and uh, I don't write about them or sometimes I write a negative review so people can have a more informed decision about what they may or may not want to read. I think... One of the things I've really liked about this invisible book idea is the fact that there are so many things out there that I don't get a chance to read. And you have put me onto quite a few things over the last year, especially that oh. I don't think I ever would have come across otherwise. That's what keeps me going. A lot of people have said that. And of course, I'm sorry to uh, bloat people's bookcases, but at the same time, it's better to have more things to, to read than you can keep up with and no things at all. <laughs> I, I have a friend who always said, 
better to be looking at it than to be looking for it. Oh, yeah. I love being judged by all the books I haven't read. They're just looming over me. They keep <laughs> me on my toes. <laughs> we'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We'll come back with George's top 10. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Play, the new place for your toddler to learn, have fun, and share all of their data. Facebook, fucking people up since 2004. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time to hear Georgia's top 10. I, I want to I say a disclaimer by way of claimer. This is my list informed by books that are the most influential to me as a writer, a reader, and as a person in general. Books that come every few years at best in a person's reading life. A lot of them come from earlier in my reading life when I'm just discovering literature and discovering what I love and not knowing quite what else is out there. Although in some cases it can be that not everything lives up to what you first found as a, an initial love. And I say this because my list is not informed by demographics. They are men. They are quote unquote white, which can offend some people. But if you want me to make any kind of list based on any kind of demographic, let me know, shoot me an email, and I'll send it your way. So without further ado, number one, can you guess it? Uh, I think you're going to say the Satanic Verses. Oh, so close. Uh, Ulysses by okay. James That Joyce. was my second choice. <laughs> I often think of this as the be-all, end-all of novels, which, of course, is hyperbolic, but it's a hyperbolic book. A lot of people focus on the fact that it's set within a 24-hour time period, uh, the fact that it's set in one city, Dublin. But these are kind of superficial uh, gleanings from the text, what makes Ulysses Ulysses is the polyphony of voices and forms. Each episode is so unique. You have the Siren episode, which is based on music and has the most uh, melodic prose out of pretty much all the episodes. You have the Circe episode, which, if I remember correctly, is a play. Uh, Aurelius. I may not remember the exact titles, uh, is based on newspaper headlines and type. And Oxen of the Sun, which is set in a hospital, teaching ward, or maternity ward, if you will. And the text evolves from the most primordial prose, including Latin, and evolves to modern day mimicking the formation of a fetus in the womb. That's brilliant. And that's what is partly what makes the book such a joy to read. 
I paused Echoes for about three months to do a deep dive of Ulysses. I had the Gifford Guide in one hand, and I had the new Bloomsday book in the other, and they unlocked many of the portals that would otherwise be closed. So much elusive, um, so many allusions to the history and the mythology of Ireland. And that's pretty much the tip of the iceberg because you can go deeper and deeper. Mark Delaney. I can't, I can't remember if his name is something Delaney. He has a podcast about each line in Ulysses, and he didn't even live to finish that podcast. Every week he would talk about a line. That's how much there is to unpack. Don't get me started on Finucane's Wake because I haven't even read it. So didn't he say he wanted to keep scholars busy for like a hundred years or how long? That's right. Yeah. I, I love Ulysses. I am in awe of that book and it is something that I, I've read once really well and I've tried to reread and I'm just desperate to have three months where I can do what you did. Mm, that, that really just took me on a whole new level as far as a writer. It's one of those few books that, that do that because, you know, it's a special experience. If every book did that, then it would be sort of a level playing field and everything would be muted and umami. Mm. Oh, I could go so long talking about Ulysses. No book really has lived up to Ulysses. That's why it's my number one. Of course, other books are really great for other reasons, but for the book, it's currently Ulysses. Maybe that will get usurped by Finnegan's Wake, but it'll be a while before I set aside time to do a very deep read of that. Number two, That's infinite, infinite Jest. It may not be Infinite Jest, but it's infinite emotions and feelings of all kinds and paradoxes and contradictory uh, elements. And one thing that really stood out to me with the jest is how he uses tragedy to heighten humor, or let me reverse that, humor to heighten tragedy. I was just talking with a friend of mine about some of the things that have stayed with me uh, after I read Infinite Jest including the video phone episode about people wearing masks and the increasing anxiety and superficiality of it all. That was such a creepy, depressing, but also hilarious section of the novel. It was all those at once. And it's that mixture that really makes me love the novel. And also on the prose level, he mixed the stifling academic with sort of a, a slacker colloquial speak, unlike any author I've ever encountered. Although there's plenty of authors who try to mimic that style, uh, for better or worse. Yeah, it's such a good book. And I think that that whole difficult tag or the, the what's it, what's, what are people calling it now? Like bro lit, I think. Mm, I think that's oh yeah, just this non-existent. A, uh, it's such a waste of time. You can be a woman, you can be anyone who you are, and you can still love it. It may not be for everyone. No book really is, unless it's James Patterson, New York Times bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I don't know if you could say I cheated 
I read Infinite Jest on my Kindle to make, uh, first of all, the weight uh, a non-factor and to avoid skipping back and forth to read the end notes. So I just click a button and poop, there's a window mm-hmm. that I can read. Uh, but obviously this is a book I want to revisit at least once, if not more times throughout my life. And I think the next time I will read it uh, physically and, and get the feeling of that, even if it annoys me. Maybe that was uh, old Davy's uh, goal, especially when he wanted to make people bored in The Pale King. Mm-hmm. Only someone as crazy and brilliant as DFW would write a book about boredom. (laughs) Number three, I have the Satanic Verses. Maybe we can keep things brief by telling people they can listen to me talk in depth about that true love of mine on the Books of Some Substance podcast. I don't remember what number it is, but it has my name as a guest. I'll stick it in the show notes. Um, with oh. Rushdie, so Satanic Verses and Midnight's Children are obviously, you know, the two things he's going to be remembered for, I think. Mm, Have you got some yes. other highlights of his career? Because I, I think I've read everything and his recent books haven't thrilled me whatsoever, mm. but have you got some other choices in there that his you think post, are worthwhile? His post-2000 works are hit and miss. I mean, Fury is certainly his worst book. Um, but there was even still some things to enjoy about it. Uh, Haroon and the Sea of Stories. I really enjoyed that. And maybe I'm in the minority when I say that I actually enjoyed the sequel to Haroon, Luca and the Fire mm-hmm. of Life, even more. That has, you know, the Lewis and Carol vibe. And it almost brought me back to the time of uh, when I read fantasy in middle school. Just an escapist quality to it, but also a love of language and literature. And it's so playful. So I'd recommend that for sure. And East West, his story collection has um, The Prophet's Hair, I believe the story is titled. That has a, that's a great story. And there's some other ones that are some real gems that I'd recommend. Um, and his memoir, Joseph Anton, I really enjoyed that. So anyone who's a fan of him should certainly delve deeper with that. All right, cool. Well, let's move on to, what is it, number four? Well, three and four, I was going to say, The Satanic Verses and Midnight's Children. Those are his twin pillar masterpieces. Uh, Just reading the beginning of Midnight's Children, you can tell you've encountered someone with a capital V voice. It's unmistakably Rushdie. The the digressive quality to it and... Just the narrator, Salim, is, is unlike any I've encountered, really. And for number five, Ficciones by Jorge Luis Borges, or as I heard Norman Mailer say on BBC, Jorge Borges. <laughs> <laughs> this is a maximalist writer by way of minimalism. Each story is its own universe, bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Such a slim volume that could be read over and over. And that could be just, you know, a labyrinth, which is one of his most potent obsessions. Labyrinths, tigers, mirrors. 
I actually wrote, well, I guess I could say I wrote two stories specifically for an anthology call for submissions about the afterlife of writers. And it's called Afterlives of the Writers, in which you imagine a writer in the afterlife, whatever that may mean for them specifically. And I wrote one about David Foster Wallace in his style. And I wrote one about Borges called Tres Borges, which is something of a sequel of Borges and I. I don't know if you've read that uh, poem slash uh, short story of his. One of his other obsessions is doppelgangers. And so, well, my name is Jorge, depending on who you ask. I'm not Spanish or anything, but I wrote Tres Borges in, in typical Borgesian fashion, I said that. Uh, the excerpt of that brief story came from an apocryphal page from a different book called Afterlives of the Writers. So uh, there's a lot of layers in a, in, a, in a story that's only a paragraph long. Number six, if on a winter's night a traveler, the ultimate, oh, in, in, in some ways, this I think is the be all end all of books. It covers all the styles in a very, uh, for some people it may be annoying, for others it could be edging in the best possible way. Have you read it? Yeah, I do love that book. I, I love the way it starts. I love the digression. I love the fact that you don't know what's going to be on the page afterwards. It reminds me of, I don't know if you read them when you were younger, but we used to get these Choose Your Own Adventure books. And I, mm, felt, no. I felt the same way when I read his book for the first time because it really is, you just don't know what's going to happen on the next page. You don't know where he's going to turn or what he's going to do. And it's mm. so much, so much fun. There's a lot of commentary. Well, it's a, it's a book about a reader reading a book, and there's a lot of commentary on the act of reading, especially near the end. Uh, that's where the, the main substance of the book is. And in fact, I recently re finally read Mulligan Stew by Gilbert Sorrentino, and they were almost published at the same time, I think a couple of years later. Um, if on a winter's night a traveler was finally translated into English, Mulligan Stew is the ultimate book of a writer writing about writing a novel, and which can be cheesy on a surface level, but Sorrentino explores this concept to its uh, ultimate conclusion, and especially when he features the writer. Uh, the writer he features is a bad writer, and you have a lot of fun with all the different kinds of bad writing you encounter, from from bad uh, erotica poetry to fiction that uses synonyms for di dialogue tags ad nauseum. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of overlap to those books. Uh, but because there's so much bad writing on a for a purposeful level. Uh, I would say that Calvino's book is a lot more enjoyable, even though I think a lot of readers can get a lot from The Stew, which will be published on the site next month, my review. And it includes a recipe for how to make mulligan stew. <laughs> Number seven. Again, 
a twin pillar masterpiece from an author. I have Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. So slim of a volume, but it demonstrates how, if you will, minimalism can be just as effective, if not more so than uninhibited maximalism. Is it poetry? Is it a short story collection? Is it a novel? Who cares? It's amazing. And it even influences architects, of all things. Um, this is one of the ultimate books for dreaming uh, about travels that you will never take. Maybe it's uh, the perfect book to read during a pandemic, to escape quarantine. But um, let me tell you that I'm writing a novel within a novel. Another novel within Echoes is called Vanished Planets, imagining various alien biology, alien geography, and alternate Earths uh, in the style of Invisible Cities. So you have that sort of omniscient eye hovering um, over grand happenings usually on a planetary level, at least for me. And this was before I read the cosmic comics. So uh, Calvino did apply some sci-fi, quite a bit of sci-fi to his style. Uh, but yeah, that was a huge influence on me. And I love just opening it and reading some of my favorites, like uh, about the city of the dead that has the exact same city underground that seems to replace or even be more alive than the city above it. Number eight, Lalita. Oh, Lalita as in lollipop. That's how it's pronounced. <laughs> Let Nabokov tell you. This is, that was something I had been meaning to read early on when I started fiction reading seriously in college. And then I took a class called The Cult of the Beautiful which explored various conceptions of what beauty means. And on the syllabus was, lo and behold, La Lita. So this is one of the few occasions where I was happy for the compulsion to read something, because usually I just don't like being told what to read, even, even if it's a good book, let's say. Uh, so I read the annotated version, and, and that showed me just how much a piece of work can be elusive uh did you read the annotated version or no the first time i read it i didn't read the annotated version and then when i went back i read the annotated version which definitely improved the experience for me but i'm waiting oh, yeah. brian boyd has got a he's going to do two volumes on the leader coming out in the next few years which i'm really excited to read when oh. that is available that sounds like an occasion for an, a reread yeah but Oh boy, there's so much going on in Lalita. Uh, Martin Amis, I think, is the one who characterized it as a fable of authoritarianism or what authoritarianism can do to you, especially if you're a nymphette. And also, I, I remember in a video I watched someone else who was interviewing Nabokov live categorized it as a way to bring back the shock factor of, of, of star-crossed love, as it were, um, or illicit love, 
now that we've moved on from Victorian ideals. So how do you make uh, something so shocking now when everyone's been inured to all that kind of stuff? There's that um, on, on a language level. Gosh, who can beat someone who's English, who, who isn't even a native English speaker, and he writes, speaks, well, I don't know about speaks, but he writes in English better than most native speakers and writers. So he's someone to look up, for, uh, look up to as far as uh, the synesthesia of his metaphors and just the verbosity, the all-out love of his language. Number nine, Underworld by Don DeLillo. This might be his masterpiece. I read all of his recent things and some of his older works, but there is still a lot of older works I have yet to get to, like the names um, Americana, Running Dog, is it? Ratner's Star. But Underworld was an immense pleasure. He mines the mysticism in the mundane in such a way where you almost don't know he's doing it. Reading it, I, you get, at least I do, I get this almost disassociative feeling like I'm somewhat half floating out of my own mind. Uh, it's almost hard to put into words. And he does this without being... He, he, I like to compare Underworld as the more tame, more calm version, or at least relative, of Infinite Jest, which is more schizophrenic and hallucinogenic experience. And we know how much uh, DFW idolized DeLillo. Um, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. And it has one of the best endings to a novel. I recently revisited that ending. I was still like, wow, that's amazing. And even uh, Videotape, which is a section of the novel, I think was published separately before, maybe after, written in the second person. That's one of my favorite short stories of all time. I remember trying to teach that in a class in, in Bulgaria for uh, my ESL students. Unfortunately, I was basically talking into a mirror, but. I did learn that teaching or trying to teach fiction, you can uh, mine a lot more than you would otherwise. Number 10, Darkenville's Cat by Alexander Theroux. Maybe I should do my Michael Silverblatt impression. <laughs> I'm Michael Silverblatt, and I love Darkenville's Cat. Does he love it? I don't know. They have some kind of beef between them, but I still think he loves it secretly. Um, <laughs> this is one of my most recent revelatory reads that lives up to the hype and beyond. The language alone is, you know, you know how James Joy said if Dublin was destroyed, he could rebuild it based on his book. If the English language was destroyed. You could rebuild it using Darkerville's cat. It has words that uh, even etymologists 
don't even know, words that haven't been uttered in centuries. So that alone is one reason why I love it dearly. But it's also an example of a minimalist story, unrequited love, blown into the proportions of maximalism. You have a variety of forms within it, um, such as a satanic incantation brought to you by one of the most villainous and creepy characters of all of literature, Dark, uh, Dr. Crucifer. You have an essay by his semi-nymphet love interest, or at least the presses. You have essays on love and hate. Uh, you have the misogynist's library. My God, I wonder why it's been out of print for 30 years and counting. People are way too sensitive to pick up on the nuance of literature and the celebration of language by way of a misogynistic uh, tradition in, in literature. Uh, if anyone reads it without wanting to be offended right away in a knee-jerk reaction, they will see that Alaric Darkenville, the protagonist, is against Crucifer's ways. And just when he's about to go on to the dark side, well, read the book and find out. <laughs> I will um, have to get you to send it to me. Absolutely. I can email it to you right after this. Um, one thing I wanted to say was how I'm backtracking some, but how Ulysses combines high art and low art. That it was also a revelatory combination to me because, you know, literature can be too academic, too up in the clouds, let's say. But that combination of loving everything and bringing everything to the table, well, that was an influence on me too. That is such a good list. I think that's got so many good things in it and so many great insights from you as well. Oh, thank you. It's a list based on the words alone not the demographics. One thing I wanted to ask you in relation to your list as well is uh, with McElroy. So he's luckily, I think he's having a bit of a revival at the moment. I think people are getting back into some of his works. Do you have a favorite work of his? There's still plenty I haven't read, but I would either say plus, which at first read to me like, a uh, post-2000s Don DeLillo squared, like point omega, but a, the point omega is in itself a black hole, but the language is so stripped down that it becomes extremely dense in, in a pleasurable way. Uh, but that's about a brain in a capsule orbiting Earth and how the brain, now that it is orbiting Earth after being launched, uh, how it is regaining consciousness. If anything, you could call it a Bildungsroman of the post-human age, of the cybernetic age. Uh, that was a pleasure, even when it was somewhat tedious, because it is a full-length novel. Uh, but that's just uh, the, the product of ambition. Nothing's going to be completely entertaining from start to finish, unless James Patterson, New York Times bestseller. Just kidding, I haven't read anything by him and never will. 
uh, or women and men, the first half. When I read the first half in my group read that I hosted with my good friend Brian at the Republic of Bad Taste is his username. Uh, that felt like a novel that is beginning to take all the liter literary traditions and move them forward, just like Ulysses did. Unfortunately, at about the halfway mark, a solipsistic black hole explodes and all of that promise becomes condensed into uh, a core that explores a child's grief uh, with his mother who had died uh, after drowning herself in, a, in a, an aquatic suicide, if you will. Uh, but then it does pick up here and there in the second half. But overall, it was a 50% disappointment. However, I would recommend that everybody try it because you don't know how you're going to react to it unless you try it yourself. And I would encourage people to seek out my review, Three Months in the Making. It took about three months to read this one, too. Uh, it mimics the breather sections, which are the most impressive of all. When he isn't doing the breathers, the breathers, which are composed of angelic and almost science fictional voices, he's doing vignettes in New York. That's where you get the most local color. And those vignettes almost feel like they're part of Don DeLillo's underworld. They're, they're very pleasurable to read, and I wish they were more of them that balance out the breathers. But um, yeah, the breathers. Our, our McElroy's singular voice. He has found something that hasn't been done, not quite in that way. But to get the most out of uh, whether you may like it or not, I would say read my review. Excellent. Well, before we wrap it up, do you want to tell us where we can find you, where we can find Kaleidoscope, where we can find your podcast? www.kaleidoscope.com. There's a Patreon for people who want to be my sugar daddy or sugar mama and support me as I buy all these expensive books and write about them in my free time. Um, that would be patreon.com forward slash the kaleidoscope. And the podcast can be found on all major platforms, including Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, and Apple. You can find me at george.solace for Instagram. And I'm also on Goodreads. Uh, I'm not sure how people can go to that. And most recently, I've joined Twitter. And you can find me sometimes tweeting at george underscore solace. And I have my own website, www.georgesolace.com. George, what's the name of your podcast? Just simply the Kaleidoscope podcast. That way people know how intimately connected it is to the main site. George, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it's been talking to you. I am going to buy quite a few of those books that you've recommended. <laughs> uh, and I really hope we can do this again. And good luck with your writing. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Definitely want to do it again. And let me know what you think of any of those books. I will, and I'll be keen to read your reviews as well. Thanks so much. Have a great one, Ben. You too. Thanks a lot, George.
Thanks once again to George Solace. His website is georgesolace.com. You can find us on Twitter at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back next week.